Claudius Part One of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Steely. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, translated by Alexander Thompson, and edited by T. Forrester. Claudius Part 1, Paragraphs 1 to 15. Livia, having married Augustus when she was pregnant, was within three months afterwards delivered of Drusus, the father of Claudius Caesar, who had at first the premonon of Decimus, but afterwards that of Nero, and it was suspected that he was begotten in adultery by his father-in-law. The following verse, however, was immediately in every one's mouth. Tos uticus cae primina padia. Poetically translated as, Nine months for the common birth, the fates decree, But for the great reduce the term to three. This Drusus, during the time of his quiesta and praetor, Commanded in Rattan and German wars, And was the first of all Roman generals who navigated the northern ocean. He made likewise some prodigious trenches beyond the Rhine, which to this day are called by his name. He overthrew the enemy in several battles, and drove them far back into the depths of the desert. Nor did he desist from pursuing them until an apparition, in the form of a barbarian woman of more than human size, appeared to him, and in the Latin tongue forbade him to proceed any further. For these achievements he had the honour of innovation and the triumphal ornaments. After his praetorship, he immediately entered into the office of consul, and returning again to Germany, died of disease in the summer encampment, which thence obtained the name of the unlucky camp. His corpse was carried to Rome by the principal persons of the several municipalities and colonies upon the road, being met and received by the recorders of each place, and buried in the Campus Martius. In honour of his memory, the army erected a monument, around which the soldiers used annually, upon a certain day, to march in solemn procession, and persons deputed from the several cities of Gaul performed religious rites. The Senate, likewise, among various other honours, decreed for him a triumphal arch of marble with trophies in the Appian Way, and gave the cognomen of Germanicus to him and his prosperity. In him the civil and military virtues were equally displayed, for, besides his victories, he gained from the enemy the spolia opima, and frequently marked out the German chiefs in the midst of their army, and encountered them in single combat at the utmost hazard of his life. He likewise often declared that he would some time or other, if possible, restore the ancient government. In this account, I suppose, some have ventured to affirm that Augustus was jealous of him, and recalled him and because he made no haste to comply with the order, took him off by poison. This I mention that I may not be guilty of any omission, more than because I think it's either true or probable, since Augustus loved him so much when living that he always in his wills made him joint heir with his sons, as he once declared in the Senate, and, upon his decease, extolling him in a speech to the people, to the degree that he prayed the guards to make his Caesars like him, and to grant himself as honourable an exit out of this world as they had given him. And, not satisfied with inscribing upon his tomb an epitaph in the verse composed by himself, 
he wrote likewise the history of his life in prose. He had by the younger Atonia several children, but left behind him only three, namely Germanicus, Livilia, and Claudius. Claudius was born at Lyons in the consulship of Julius Antonius and Fabius Africanus, upon the 1st of August, at the very day upon which an altar was first dedicated there to Augustus. He was named Tiberius Claudius Drusus, but soon afterwards, upon the adoption of his elder brother into the Julian family, he assumed the cognomen Germanicus. He was left an infant by his father, and during almost the whole of his minority, and for some time after, he attained the age of manhood, was afflicted with a variety of obstinate disorders, insomuch that his mind and body being greatly impaired, he was, even after his arrival at the years of maturity, never thought sufficiently qualified for any public or private employment. He was therefore, during a long time, and even after the expiration of his minority, under the direction of a pedagogue, who, he complains in a certain memoir, was a barbarous wretch, and formerly superintendent of the mule-drivers, who was selected for his governor on the purpose to correct him severely on every trifling occasion. On account of this crazy constitution of body and mind, at the spectacle of gladiators which he gave the people jointly with his brother, in honour of his father's memory, he presided, muffled up, in a pallium, a new fashion. When he assumed the manly habit, he was carried in a litter at midnight to the capital, without the usual ceremony. He applied himself, however, from an early age, with great assiduity, to the study of the liberal sciences, and frequently published specimens of his skill in each of them. But never, with all his endeavours, could he attain to any public post in the government, or afford any hope of arriving at distinction thereafter. His mother, Antonia, frequently called him an abortion of a man that has only been begun, but never finished by nature. And when she would upbraid any one with dullness, she said, he was a greater fool than her son, Claudius. His grandmother, Augusta, always treated him with the utmost contempt. Very rarely spoke to him, when she did admonish him upon any occasion, it was in writing, very briefly and severely, or by messengers. His sister Livilia, upon hearing that he was about to be created emperor, openly and loudly expressed her indignation that the Roman people should experience a fate so severe and so much below their grandeur. To exhibit the opinion both favourable and otherwise entertained concerning him by Augustus, his great uncle, I have here subjoined some extracts from the letters of that emperor. They begin. I have had some conversation with Tiberius according to your desire, my dear Livia, as to what must be done with your grandson Tiberius at the games of Mars. We are both agreed in this, that once for all we ought to determine what course to take with him. For if he be really sound, and, so to speak, quite right in his intellects, why should we hesitate to promote him by the same steps and degrees we did his brother? But if we find him below par and deficient both in body and mind, we must beware of giving occasion for him and ourselves to be laughed at by the world, which is ready enough to make such things the subject of mirth and derision. For we shall never be easy, if we are always to be debating upon every occasion of this kind, without settling in the first instance whether he be really capable of public offices or not. 
With regard to what you consult me about at present moment, I am not against his superintending the feasts of the priests in the games of Mars, if he will suffer himself to be governed by his kinsman, Silius's son, that he may do nothing to make the people stare and laugh at him. But I do not approve of his witnessing the Circian games from the Pulvinar. He will there be exposed to view in the very front of the theatre. Nor do I like that he should go to the Albion Mount, or be at Rome during the Latin festivals, for if he be capable of attending his brother to the Mount, why has he not made prefect of the city? Thus, my dear Livia, you have my thoughts upon the matter. In my opinion, we ought to settle this affair for once and for all, that we may not always be in suspense between hope and fear. You may, if you think proper, give your kinsman Antonia this part of my letter to read. In another letter he writes as follows, I shall invite the youth, Tiberius, every day during your absence to supper, that he may not sup alone with his friends, Sulpicius and Athendonorus. I wish the poor creature was more cautious and attentive in the choice of someone whose manners, air, and gait might be proper for his imitation. Atuki panu tu sporadicus leon. In things of consequence he sadly fails. Where his mind does not run astray, he discovers a noble disposition. In a third letter, he says, Let me die, my dear Livia, if I am not astonished that the declamation of your grandson Tiberius should please me. For how he who talks so ill should be able to declaim so clearly and properly, I cannot imagine. There is no doubt, but Augustus, after this, came to the resolution upon the subject, and accordingly left him invested with no other honour than that of augural priesthood, naming him among the heirs of the third degree who were but distantly allied to his family, for a sixth part of his estate only, with a legacy of no more than eight hundred thousand sesterces. Upon his requesting some office in the state, Tiberius granted him the honorary appendages of the consulship, and when he pressed for a legitimate appointment, the emperor wrote word back that, he sent him forty gold pieces for his expenses during the festivals of Saturnalia and Siglaria. Upon this, laying aside all hope of advancement, he resigned himself entirely to an indolent life, living in great privacy, one with his gardens or a villa which he had near the city, another while in Campania, where he passed his time in the lowliest society, by which means, Beside his former character of a dull, heavy fellow, he acquired that of drunkard and gamester. Notwithstanding this sort of life, much respect was shown him both in public and in private. The equestrian order twice made a choice of him to intercede on their behalf, once to obtain from the consuls the favour of bearing on their shoulders the corpse of Augustus to Rome, and a second time to congratulate him upon the death of Sejanus. When he entered the theatre, they used to rise and pull off their cloaks. The Senate likewise decreed that he should be added to the number of Augustal College of Priests, who were chosen by lot, and soon afterwards, when his house was burned down, that it should be rebuilt at the public charge, and that he should have the privilege of giving his vote among the men of the consular rank. This decree was, however, repealed, Tiberius insisting to have him excused on account of his imbecility and promising to make good his loss at his own expense. 
but at his death he named him in his will among his third heirs for a third part of his estate, leaving him beside a legacy of two millions of sesterces, and expressly recommending him to the armies, the senate, and the people of Rome amongst his other relations. At last Caius, his brother's son, upon his advancement to the empire, endeavouring to gain the affections of the public by all arts of popularity, Claudius also was admitted to the public offices, and held the consulship jointly with his nephew for two months. As he was entering the forum for the first time in the Fasius, an eagle, which was flying that way, alighted upon his right shoulder. A second consulship was allotted to him to commence at the expiration of the fourth year. He sometimes presided at the public spectacles as the representative of Caius, being always on those occasions complimented with the acclamations of the people, wishing him all happiness, sometimes under the title of the emperor's uncle, and sometimes under that of Germanicus's brother. Still, he was subject to many slights. If at any time he came in late to supper, he was obliged to walk around the room some time before he could get a place at the table. When he indulged himself with sleep after eating, which was common practice with him, the company used to throw olive stones and dates at him, and the buffoons who attended would wake him, as if only in jest, with a cane or a whip. Sometimes they would put slippers upon his hands, as he lay snoring, that he might upon awaking rub his face with them. He was not only exposed to contempt, but sometimes likewise to considerable danger. First in his consulship, for having been too remiss in providing and erecting the statues of Cassius's brothers, Nero and Drusus, he was very near being deprived of his office, and afterwards he was continually harassed with informations against him by one or other, sometimes even of his own domestics. When the conspiracy of Lepius and Gluticulus was discovered being sent with some other deputies into Germany to congratulate the emperor upon the occasion, he was in danger of his life, Caius being greatly enraged and loudly complaining that his uncle was sent to him as if he was a boy who wanted a governor. Some even say that he was thrown into a river in his travelling dress. From this period he voted in the Senate, always the last of the members of the consular rank, being called upon after the rest on purpose to disgrace him. A charge of the forgery of the will was also allowed to be prosecuted, though he only signed it as a witness, at last being obliged to pay eight million of sesterces on entering upon a new office of the priesthood. He was reduced to such straits in his private affairs that in order to discharge his bond to the treasury, he was under the necessity of exposing to sale his whole estate by the order of the prefects. Having spent the greater part of his life under these and like circumstances, he came at last to the empire in the fiftieth year of his age, by a very surprising turn of fortune. Being, as well as the rest, prevented from approaching Caius by the conspirators who dispersed the crowd, under the pretext of his desiring to be private, he retired to an apartment called the Hermium, and soon afterwards, terrified by the report of Caius being slain, he crept into the adjoining balcony, where he hid himself behind the hangings of the door. A common soldier, who happened to pass by that way, spying his feet, and desirous to discover who he was, pulled him out, when immediately recognising him, 
he threw himself in great fright at his feet, and saluted him by the title of emperor. He then conducted him to his fellow soldiers, who were all in a great rage, and irresolute what they should do. They put him into a litter, and as the slaves of the palace had all fled, took their turns in carrying him on their shoulders, and brought him into the camp, sad and trembling. The people who met him lamented his situation, as if the poor innocent was being carried to execution. Being received within the ramparts, he continued all night, with the sentries on guard, recovering somewhat from his fright, but in no great hopes of the succession. For the consuls, with the senate and civil troops, had possessed themselves of the forum and capital, with the determination to assert the public liberty, and he being sent for likewise by a tribune of the people to the senate house, to give his advice upon the present juncture of affairs, returned the answer, I am under constraint, and cannot possibly come. The day afterwards, the senate being dilatory to their proceedings, and worn out by divisions amongst themselves, while the people who surrounded the senate house shouted that they should have one master, naming Claudius. He suffered the soldiers assembled under the arms to swear allegiance to him, promising them fifteen thousand sesterces a man, he being the first of the Caesars who purchased the submission of the soldiers with money. Having thus established himself in power, his first object was to abolish all remembrance of the two preceding days, in which a revolution in the state had been canvassed. Accordingly, he passed an act of perpetual oblivion and pardon for everything said or done during that time, and this he faithfully observed, with the exception only of putting to death a few tribunes and centurions concerned in the conspiracy against Caius, both as an example and because he understood that they had also planned his own death. He now turned his thoughts towards paying respect to the memory of his relations. His most solemn and usual oath was by Augustus. He prevailed upon the Senate to decree divine honours to his grandmother Livia, with the chariot in the Circensian procession drawn by elephants, as had been appointed for Augustus, and public offerings to the shades of his parents. Besides which, he instituted Circensian games for his father, to be celebrated every year upon his birthday, and for his mother a chariot to be drawn through the circus, with the title of Augusta, which had been refused by his grandmother. To the memory of his brother, to which upon all occasions he showed a great regard, he gave a Greek comedy to be exhibited in the public diversions at Naples, and awarded the crown for it, according to the sentence of the judges in that solemnity. Nor did he omit to make honour and grateful mention to Mark Antony, declaring by proclamation that he the more earnestly insisted upon the observation of his father Drusius's birthday, because it was likewise that of his grandfather Antony. He completed the marble arch near Pompey's theatre, which had formerly been decreed by the Senate in honour of Tiberius, but which had been neglected, and though he cancelled all the acts of Caius, yet he forbade the day of his assassination. Notwithstanding, it was that of his own accession to the empire to be reckoned among the festivals. But with regard to his own aggrandizement, he was sparing and modest, declining the title of emperor, and refusing all excessive honours. He celebrated the marriage of his daughter, 
and the birthday of a grandson with great privacy at home. He recalled none of those who had been banished without a decree of the Senate, and requested of them permission for the prefect of the military tribunes and praetorian guards to attend him in the Senate house, and also that they would be pleased to bestow upon his procurators judicial authority in the provinces. He asked of the consuls likewise the privilege of holding fairs upon his private estate. He frequently assisted the magistrates in the trial of causes as one of their assessors, and when they gave public spectacles, he would rise up with the rest of the spectators and salute them both by words and gestures. When the tribunes of people came to him while he was on the tribunal, he excused himself, because, on account of the crowd, he could not hear them unless they stood. In a short time, by his conduct, he wrought himself so much into the favour and affection of the public, that when, upon his going to Ostia, a report was spread in the city that he had been waylaid and slain, the people never ceased cursing the soldiers for traitors, and the senate as parricides, until one or two persons, and presently after several others, were brought by the magistrate upon the rostra, who assured them that he was alive and not far from the city on his way home. Conspiracies, however, were formed against him, not only by individuals separately, but by a faction, and at last his government was disturbed with civil war. A low fellow was found with a poniard about him, near his chamber at midnight. Two men of the equestrian order were discovered waiting for him in the streets, armed with a tuck and a huntsman's dagger. One of them intended to attack him as he came out of the theatre, and the other as he was sacrificing in the temple of Mars. Gallus Asinius and Statilius Corvinus, grandsons of the two orators Pollio and Messala, formed a conspiracy against him, in which they engaged many of his free men and slaves. Ferius Camillius Scribonianus, his lieutenant in the Dalmatia, broke into the rebellion, but was reduced in the space of five days. The legions, which he had seduced from their oath of fidelity, relinquishing their purpose upon an alarm occasioned by ill omens, for when orders were given them to march to meet their new emperor, the eagles could not be decorated, nor the standards pulled out of the ground, whether it was by accident or a divine interposition. Besides his former consulship, he held the office afterwards four times, the first two successively, but the following after an interval of four years each, the last for six months, the others for two, and the third upon his being chosen in the room of a consul who died, which had never been done by any of the emperors before him. Whether he was a consul or out of office, he constantly attended the courts for the administration of justice, even upon such days as were solemnly observed as days of rejoicing in his family or by his friends, and sometimes upon the public festivals of ancient institution. Nor did he always adhere strictly to the letter of the laws, but overruled the rigour or lenity of many of their enactments, according to his sentiments of justice and equality. For where persons lost their suits by insisting upon more than appeared to be their due before the judges of private causes, he granted them the indulgence of a second trial. And with regard to such as were convicted of any great delinquency, he even exceeded the punishment appointed by law, and condemned them to be exposed to wild beasts. But in hearing and determining causes, he exhibited a strange inconsistency of temper, being at one time circumspect and sagacious, at another inconsiderate and rash, 
and sometimes frivolous, and, like one out of his mind. In correcting the role of judges, he struck off the name of one who, concealing the privilege his children gave him to be excused from serving, had answered to his name, as too eager for the office. Another, who was summoned before him in a cause of his own, but alleged that the affair did not properly come under the emperor's cognizance, but that of ordinary judges, he ordered to plead the cause himself immediately before him, and show him, in a case of his own, how equitable a judge he would prove in that of other persons. A woman refusing to acknowledge her own son, and there being no clear proof on either side, he obliged her to confess the truth by ordering her to marry the young man. He was much inclined to determine causes in favour of parties who appeared against those who did not, without inquiring whether their absence was occasioned by their own fault or by real necessity. On proclamation of a man's being convicted of forgery, and that he ought to have his hands cut off, he insisted that an executioner should be immediately sent for, with a Spanish sword and a block. A person being prosecuted for falsely assuming the freedom of Rome, and a frivolous dispute arising between the advocates in the cause, whether he ought to make his appearance in the Rome or the Grecian dress. To show his impartiality, he commanded him to change his clothes several times, according to the character he assumed in the accusation or defence. An anecdote is related of him, and believed to be true, that in a particular cause he delivered his sentence in writing thus, I am in favour of those who have spoken the truth. By this he so much forfeited the good opinion of the world, that he was everywhere and openly despised. A person making an excuse for the non-appearance of a witness whom he had sent for from the provinces, declared it was impossible for him to appear, concealing the reason for some time. At last, after several interrogatories were put to him on the subject, he answered, The man is dead. To which Claudius replied, I think that this is a sufficient excuse. Another thanking him for suffering a person who was prosecuted to make his defence by counsel added, and yet it is no more than what is usual. I have likewise heard old men say that the advocates used to abuse his patience so grossly that they would not only call him back as he was quitting the tribunal, but would seize him by the lap of his coat and sometimes catch him by his heels to make him stay. Some obscure Greek, who was litigant, had an altercation with him, in which he called out, You are an old fool! That such behaviour, however strange, is not incredible, will appear from this anecdote. It is certain that a Roman knight, who was prosecuted by the impotent device of his enemies on the false charge of abominable obscenity with women, observing that the common strumpets were summoned against him, and allowed to give evidence, upbraided Claudius in very harsh and severe terms, with his folly and cruelty, and threw his style and some books which he had in his hands, in his face, with such violence as to wound him severely in the cheek. End of Claudius Part 1 Recording by Alan Steely, Bristol, UK.